Amen. Till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. It's a great, uh, great lead into our passage this morning. Uh, I'd like to invite you to open to Romans 13. We're going to finish Romans 13 today. I didn't say we're going to finish Romans today. Just We're going to cover more than one verse. For those of you visiting, that doesn't happen all the time. Romans 13, 11 through the end of the chapter, please listen with the appropriate attention to the word of God. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. So reads the word of the living God. I almost entitled this message, You Can't Go to Heaven If You're Not a Morning Person. But I decided not to. But that's kind of the point, as you will see. So my father had this, uh, this irritating and annoying habit when I was a boy on Saturday mornings of barging into my room at some insane hour, like 7.30, and saying, do you know what time it is? Get up! Actually, he didn't do that. Actually, he came and knocked on the door probably by 8, and said, hey, do you know what time it is? You're wasting the day away, get up! But it sounded like, as the boy laying asleep, like he just barged in and had some ruthless, relentless, uncaring tone. Like, don't you, I'm asleep in here. If God wanted me to wake up uh, at, the, at this time of the day, he would have put it later in the day. That's kind of what I was thinking. And then sometimes I was awakened hearing my mom pleading my case before my dad came in. So let him sleep, let him sleep. Like, yes, let him sleep. But then I was already awake and it didn't matter. But my dad is from a generation that to sleep past 7 o'clock, it's like you've wasted everything. My mom to this day, she's in her late 80s. My dad's in his early 90s. My mom to this day, she'll say, I don't know what's going to happen to us. I don't know. We're, I guess we're just getting old or something. Like, uh, we slept till nearly 6.30 this morning. A.M., <laughs> you know, A.M. But my dad wanted me to get up because it's, daylight, wasting the day away. My wife and I have developed a different Saturday morning habit. We set our alarms to go off at the same time, and since they're both iPhones, you know, they're hooked up to the same whatever, and so they go off exactly the same time, and they vibrate, and we've got some irritating noise, and they go off exactly the same time, and we both reach over and snooze them, and then I roll over, and I cuddle up behind her, and I settle in for nine more minutes. And then they go off again, and we smack the phone, and I roll over, and I cuddle up behind her for nine more minutes. 
And we lay there, at least I lay there, thinking, oh, I'm wasting the day away, but this is worth it. This is okay. My dad wasn't right about everything, just most things. But have you ever noticed, those of you with little kids uh, who've ever had little kids uh, know this, and maybe you remember back to your own little kid days, but you ever noticed that's not the case with little ones? The sun's up, I'm supposed to be up. Those of you that have your first child, uh, newborn, young, or about to have your first child, um, those cuddling days are a long, long ways in your future. Because even after you get them sleeping through the night, sun's up, I'm up. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Feed me. Or play with me. Or do something with me. Because the sun is up. Where is everybody? Why? I think it's because they are excited about the day. You don't have to, it doesn't take much to, to impress a little, a little kid, a little boy or a little girl. You don't have to tell them the whole fairy tale, the whole story. Someone knocked at the door and the door opened and they're like, wah! The door opened, really? There's a sense of wonder. There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of, it's Daylight, why would I want to stay in bed another second? Because there's stuff to do. And I'm not sure what age it is that we lose that. It's like, oh, there's stuff to do, right? Well, that's kind of the message Paul is giving us here. He says, do you know what time it is? In fact, he doesn't even ask the question. He says, you do know what time it is. Do this. Do everything I've been telling you to do in chapters 12 and 13, uh, focusing on this last section about loving one another. Do all this with an understanding of what time it is. You know what time it is. The sun is almost up. It's already the hour to get up. Here's Paul's version of bursting into your room and saying, get up. You're wasting the day away. Do you know what the hour is? You do know what the hour is. It's time to awaken from sleep. For now, he says, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, on one hand, that's kind of a duh statement, right? Of course, salvation is nearer than when we believed. That was then. This is now. It's got to be closer. But what's he saying? It's coming. Today might be the day. Till he returns or calls me home. He might, he might return before I get done. He might return this week. He might return this year. He might come back to the earth soon. Or he might not. I don't know. But I do know this about both of us. We're not going to be here in a hundred or so years. Some of us are not going to be here next year, probably. I don't know who that is. Don't know. Not a prophet. Many of us are not going to be here 50 years from now. The day is drawing near. Are you awake? Wake up. One of these days, whether he comes back or calls us home, one of these days, we are going to turn the page to the next page, the next chapter, the next, the, the next epic and we're going to be with him forever. And our salvation 
will be almost complete. I guess if we want to talk about all the stages, there's still the, the full consummation and redemption of our bodies and all that. But, but uh, his point is he's, he's kind of encapsulating this whole thing, saying it's close. The Bible uses the word salvation in various tenses. The way we usually use it is, I was saved. You talk about the day that you became a Christian, the day you understood the gospel, the day you repented of your sins and called out to Jesus for forgiveness. You say, I was saved on that day. And that's true. But the Bible also says, you are being saved. There's a process that's going on here. And the Bible says, you will be saved. Because the truth of the matter is, though it's a done deal in God's mind, and though he declares us righteous the moment we put our trust in Christ, the truth is, someday we will all actually stand before Jesus. And he will take his perfection and his law and he will compare your works and my works. And guess what? They don't measure up, do they? Your life, my life, our attitudes, our actions, our behaviors, our, our, uh, our account is, is littered with black marks and we have to match his holy perfection, and we don't. And on that day, he's going to say, but I forgive you. Because I went to the cross, and I suffered the wrath of my Father for you. And every one of these marks was put to my account, and I'm taking my entire white, pure, glorious account, and I'm putting it now on yours, and you are free. Enter into your rest forever. And you can rightly say then, I am saved completely for eternity. That day is coming. And an entire human epic has, taken, has, has had a transition since the coming of Christ. I make a big deal of this sometimes around the new year, and I'm going to continue to make a big deal of this because I think we ought as Christians to be making a big deal of this. There are holidays in the United States of America that are exclusively Christian. Easter, Christmas, can't give those up. New Year's Day is an exclusively Christian holiday. 2015 years from what? The entire Western world is counting the years A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't know it. They don't care, but that's what they're counting. Something happened with the coming of Jesus. All of human history reached its, its, its watershedy moment, a moment, an event with the coming of Christ. And since that time, we've been living in the year of our Lord Jesus and counting the years since. And Paul is asking, since you know or I guess he's actually telling, since you know what time it is, you know you are living in this new age, you know you're living in the time that all has been fulfilled in Christ, wake up! There's stuff to do. There are things. There's a calling. There are purposes. You can live today as a servant of Jesus Christ and glory in all that he has done. Wake up! And live. Because that final day is drawing near and it's getting closer. We need to live as those who are expecting and yearning for that day. He says the night is almost gone. That old age, both cosmically 
and individually, your old age, not your old age, your dark age, that, that pre-Christ days age for you. That time when you lived in darkness, when you were asleep, the night's over. The light is shining, the sun is up. You're in Christ now, in Christ alone I stand. Get up, wake up, and do something. Tell the rest of the world, the sun is shining. The sun is up. You can't see it, I understand that, but I can help you see it. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's warm, and it's exciting, and there's life, and there's activity worth doing. Come join me in an awakened state. He says, the night is almost gone, and the day is near. He's echoing Jesus. You've heard Jesus echoed all the way through Romans 12 and 13. He's clearly been reading the Gospels. And Jesus' words are, are coming through all of these. And the day is near. Think of Jesus saying, be ready. I'm going to come. And, and if you're a bad servant, you're, you're going to be caught off guard. But if you're a good servant, you're going you're to expect me to come. You're going to be waiting for me to come. You're going to be ready for me to come. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Wake up. Be ready. The day is drawing near. And this is how we do this. This is how we how we live in the daylight. He says, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. NAS here translates this lay aside. I wish they would be consistent because it's that common put on, put off terminology. Put off this thing, put on this thing. We see it all over with Paul. Put off the deeds of darkness. Like a, like a coat, take those off and put on the armor or the weapons of light. Well, what do you mean, Paul? How do I, how do, I do this? Let us put, behave properly or decently as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Paul's writing to a culture very similar to the United States of America in 2015 AD. Very similar. In those days, they called it bacchanalia serving the god Bacchus. And they celebrated, they worshipped Bacchus by getting drunk and having parties. They were a party culture. They were a sex culture. Well, if Paul were writing today, he would talk about a porn culture. Right? He would talk about a hookup culture. That's the world we live in. That's the, that's the darkness. That's, it's all around us. Those are the deeds of darkness. And he says, wake up, get out of there. That's not for you. It's true. It's all over the place. You know it. I know it. It's what our culture lives for. We don't call it bacchanalia. We call it carnival, Mardi Gras, Friday night, and Saturday night. Can't wait to the weekend. Why? Because we're going to go to the bar. We're going to go to a party. We're going to go get drunk and do whatever we can do while we're, while we're drunk. It's, isn't it uh, amazing? No, it's amazing. It's obvious. Why drunkenness and sexual sin go together. Well, it's rampant. It's in our colleges. You've seen all the stuff in the news lately about the rapes and things at colleges. Well, where do you think all that came from? What are they trying to do? They're trying to clamp down, these, these universities are trying to clamp down on something they've allowed to grow for decades and it's gotten out of hand. Well, it's always been out of hand from a, from a godly perspective, but now 
men can't, can't seem to figure out the difference between just doing what everybody else does and what's wrong. What's wrong about this? I'm not going to go too far into this, but I saw an article yesterday or the day before where a guy was arrested for doing some pretty uh, unseemly things to his girlfriend, and he said, well, I was just acting out what I saw in Fifty Shades of Grey. And now there's a question of, is he culpable? Well, of course he's culpable. But then again, you look at our culture and think, I could foresee a jury saying, no, that's the culture. No means yes. That's the world we live in. And Paul says, that's darkness. Wake up. That is not a place for children of the light. Those are not appropriate behaviors for the children of the light. Put that off. And, and I think if he were writing today, he would say, and don't be entertained by people who are acting like this. Don't take your laptop into your room and shut the door. Because you are awake. You see the light. You know the sun is up. It's not fitting for us. Now, I know you all pretty well. I know the kind of church we are. And I know that if we had people in this body who were involved in these kind of parties, and we knew about it, and, and we had people who were committing adultery and fornication and, and addicted to porn and all those kind of things, we would deal with that. We would address that. We would, we would try to help those people. We would try to encourage them and pray for them and help them work through it. And if, if someone got involved in some of these worst kinds of things, so much so that they were unrepentant, well, then we would do whatever we have to do for their sake and for the purity of the church. That's, that's the kind of people we are. We care about purity. We care about individuals. We care about God's word. We wouldn't sit by idly and watch people in gross and heinous sexual sin. I know that about this church. We've, we've done this. But did you notice there were two other sins mentioned in the same breath with all the sexual sin? Strife and jealousy. Now, we don't usually equate those and put them on the same scale. We make a big, big, big deal. Sexual sin is a huge deal. Oh, don't even talk about those things. But God forbid if we are a kind of church that tolerates in our own hearts strife and jealousy. Paul puts them on the same plane. It is not fitting for children of light, for those who see that the sun is up. It is not okay for us to be troublemakers. It's not okay for us to be the kind of people that causes dissension among other brothers and sisters. It's not okay for us to be actively involved in fighting and quarreling and bitter rivalry. That's darkness. We're to come out of that and live in the day. And jealousies and envies and all the other kinds of words that just describe not getting along peaceably and lovingly. Remember, we, are, we saw in, in earlier in, verse, in chapter 13, this is the climax of everything, the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament is Christ, which leads to love. Love one another. There is no place for strife and jealousy and 
fighting and anger and bitterness and hostility. There's no place. And, and so we need to treat it in our own hearts. We need to treat that kind of sin with the same uh, allergy as we do toward sexual things. Because in God's mind, it's just as bad. So even those of us who would say, I am not, I'm, I'm going to avoid all those things, I'm going to keep myself pure, uh, may have some of these other things we need to get out of our hearts and pursue love and peace and kindness and grace. So he says, strife, jealousy, none of it is okay. Put all of that off. Blessed are the peacemakers, the gentle and the pure. How do we do that? He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the armor of light. Those are parallel statements. Put on the weapons of light. We have to fight our temptation to sin. We have to fight the darkness because it keeps wanting, it keeps drawing us back. Because when we come out of the darkness, we do remember the darkness, and, and we wouldn't have stayed in the darkness if it didn't feel good. Right? Sexual sin feels good. That's why there's so much of it. Strife and jealousy feels good. I mean, it feels good to really let somebody have it. Or you wouldn't do it, right? To, to just go off on somebody, to, to just dress them down. It, it, you feel great, at least for a little while. Well, she wouldn't do it. And we get out of the darkness and then there's just this, you know, the voice is calling us back. Go back, go back in there and spend a little time in the darkness. And Paul says you have to put that off. Put off those deeds and you put on in its place, you put on Christ. Put on Jesus. Put on the grace of the gospel that you have been redeemed and rescued and forgiven from that darkness. And put on, notice how he says it, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think it's just routine that he puts Lord first. You're not in the darkness anymore. You are in the light. You serve the Lord Jesus. Remember Romans 6 back several years ago? Romans 6, where Paul goes to great lengths to say, you were enslaved to sin. Remember we talked about master sin. Sin was your master. You did what sin told you to do because you were his subject. But you have died to that realm. In Christ, you're dead. You're dead to that realm, and you've been born again. You've been raised up over here in, into the, the, the kingdom of righteousness, where master righteousness is now your king. He's just appealing back to those same kind of things. You can put off the deeds of darkness and walk in light because Jesus is your Lord. And you want to please him and you want to serve him and you want to do what he wants you to do, not what Master Sin wants to do. Master Sin knows you're gone, but he still calls, say, hey, come back here a little bit. Remember, you liked serving me. It felt good. And Paul says, no, no, don't go back there for a second. He's not your king. Jesus is your king. Put him on. And then he says, make no, he gives very tangible uh, application here, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. When you make provision for something, when you provide something, what does it take? 
It takes forethought. You have to plan. If you're going to provide for somebody, you have to plan. You have to think ahead. That's really the Greek word that lies behind this. That's what it means, forethought. Think ahead of something. Paul says here, don't give any forethought for the, the realm of darkness. Don't plan ahead for sin and for lusts. Whether it's lust of sexual immorality or lust of anger and bitterness, don't plan ahead for that. It starts up here. Do you see the parallels between the first part of chapter 12? There he said, look back to all the gospel, all the grace that I have just laid out for you in Romans 1 through 11. Remember we talked about those first 11 chapters as being an explanation of the grace of God. All that he has done, justification, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, all those things. He, he's, he's laid out the gospel in its fullest form all the way through those first 11 chapters. And Paul says, in light of all those mercies, in light of God's grace and his kindness and his favor to you, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and have a renewed mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind in light of all that God has done for you. Now he's saying, look ahead to what's coming. Look ahead to that day when you will be with Christ forever, that day when you will enter into glory. Look ahead to that day and do something with your mind. Don't let your mind think about and plan for the deeds of darkness. It starts up here. It starts in our thinking. Think back to recent sins and struggles and temptations. How often would it have been different if you had given different kind of forethought to it? Think back to the Garden of Eden. I was telling the Frack Foundations class. I started off in January to read through the Bible again and I got stuck. I can't get out of Genesis 3. I've read 1 and 2 and 3 and 1 and 2 and 3 and 1 and 2 and 3. I don't know how many times since January 1st. I just can't get out of those three chapters. And I'll sit and I'll reflect and I'll meditate and I'll think. And man, this, this glorious universe that God created. And the, the animals spring into life and the plants spring into life. And ah, oh, how gorgeous must it have been and how wonderful must it have been. And Adam and Eve just, boom, can you imagine? Adam, I, there, there's, just, there's no pre-existence. He just... I don't know, what did he say? What do you say? He's like, whoa, I don't even know you said that. Can you imagine what it's like for Adam and Eve? Just, I mean, it's like the little boy wakes up. There's stuff. Who am I? Who are you? I don't know, I'm just... What am I? Well, what is all this? He sees the animals, and they, they apparently weren't afraid of him. They walked right up to him, and he named them, right? He, and just, what were those early days and weeks? And I don't know how long, maybe they live, I don't know if they live for years, but how long Adam and Eve, just the two of them, enjoying each other, enjoying this world, and oh, glorious. I'm not going to tell you all of the thoughts I have, but man, I just can't get away from it. What would that have been like? And then the serpent. The Bible says the serpent was the wisest of all God's creatures. 
Now, we usually translate it cunning or something like that, but the word really means wise. That assumes the other animals were wise, just the serpent was wiser. Remember, cats weren't around yet. Satan created cats later. Thank you. And the serpent slithers up to the woman and he says something and it's kind of shocking to us that it wasn't shocking to her that he said something. Makes you wonder if animals talked back then. Makes me wonder that at least. Maybe you don't wonder that. But did you notice how Satan did it? He started with a question. Hey Eve, did God, did he really say that you couldn't eat of any of the trees? He got her thinking. That's a wise way to stir up trouble. Get people thinking. Ask a question. Did he eat? Did, did he say don't eat of any of these trees? Hmm. No, 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 that, that's not what he said. No, we can eat, we can eat of the, the trees, except that one in the middle. And we can't even touch it. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say God said that. So where did she get that? Did God say it and it's just not recorded? Or is already the mind overthinking, thinking wrongly, pondering, huh? Well, if I can't eat, I shouldn't even touch it. Then Satan says, you know you're not going to die. You're not going to die if you eat of that tree. See, Eve, God's holding out on you. He knows that if you go eat that, you're going to be just like him. And he's a jealous God, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to be God. He doesn't want you to be God. He wants to be up there and you down here, and you're going to be just like him. And he knows that. He's afraid of that. If you go eat of that, then you're not going to die. You're going to become like God. And now Eve starts thinking. And the scripture says she saw three things. She saw... It was good for food. Well, that tree's as good for food as all the rest of this. Why shouldn't I eat it? I mean, he made this food and this fruit and this fruit and this fruit, and he made that one, and it's good food. Why, why wouldn't, would God really not want me to enjoy this, this thing he created? He wants me to be happy, right? And then it delighted her eyes. And it's a really, really attractive fruit. I like attractive things. I can decide for myself what I should or shouldn't eat. And then the third thing, she saw it would make her wise. I can be wise like God. Okay, so it's good. And I like it. And it will make me wise give me one good reason I shouldn't go eat that fruit. Okay, I'll give you one good reason. God said don't. But she didn't think that. She didn't think that. Saw a great quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones this week. He said, most of us, most of our unhappiness is because we spend all of our time listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. 
Think about that. That is a profound statement. The voices in our head. You know, Eve, it, it, it looks really good. And it's going to be a benefit to you. And Who does God think he is? God? And, and why shouldn't you eat it? What's he doing? And, and instead of talking to herself saying, no, 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 no. Life is wonderful and God said no. Maybe that's backwards. God said no and life is wonderful. No, I'm not going to listen to those voices. I'm not going to listen to those words. I'm going to think on what I know is true, what God has told me. God created me. The snake didn't create me. God created me. God made all this. And God said, don't do it. I'm not listening to those voices in my head anymore. I'm listening to the voice of God. If she had captured what was going on in her mind before she acted and brought the truth of God and his word to that situation, she wouldn't have eaten it. But there's forethought there. That's good. It feels good. Smells good. Looks like it would taste really good. It'll make me wise. I like it. It's to my benefit. I'm going to be happier if I do this. Yeah, I'm going. How many of our sins are the result of that kind of thinking? Cannot believe he said that to me. The voice, you're right. How appalling that he would say that to you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't understand you. Who does he think he is? You know what he thinks of you, don't you? He thinks you're stupid. He thinks you're dirt. He thinks it's all about him. He couldn't care less about you. He doesn't understand you. You know what you need to do? You need to go tell him about it. You need to go tell him how awful he is, how foolish he is, how he's wrong. You need to make him feel the pain you're feeling right now. It'll feel good It'll be good. You're just loving your brother. You know, you want his best, right? He needs to see the, the depth of his sin. And you're the right person to show him. And you got all these voices going around in your head. And the, the master sin, Satan's going, yeah, come on over. Come on back over here a little bit. Live in the darkness a little bit. Oh, yeah, it's going to feel so good. Yeah, now go let him have it. Sexual sin, same thing. It'll feel good. It'll make me happy. And I'm not happy. And God wants me to be happy. Probably you don't bring that part in, do you? And you're wrestling around with it. It gets in there. And you're listening to yourself. And you're listening to this poor me or what I want. Me, 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 me. Instead of saying, no, I'm not going to give thought to those things. I'm going to stop it now. And I'm going to remember what Christ told me. Blessed are the pure. I'm married, I take those thoughts to my wife. If you're not married, you take them to Jesus and only Jesus. When it comes to the bitterness and the strife and the anger, you say, I am to love my neighbor. Period. But you, if you give forethought, to the flesh, you give forethought to the deeds of darkness, you're often, like Eve, going to go down that path. 
Remember in Philippians where Paul says, let me tell you where to set your mind. Set it on Christ. Set it on things above. Think on these things. Where Jesus is sitting on his throne in the heavenlies. Think about Christ. Think about the fact that the day is drawing near and you might be there today. So whatever is pure, whatever is noble, Whatever is good, whatever is profitable, whatever is true, whatever is righteous, think on these things. Don't give forethought to the things of the flesh and its lust. Give forethought to how you can please Jesus in your words, in your actions, in your thinking, in your decisions, all that. Because it's daytime. It's time to get up. You've slept long enough. The sun is almost here. You can see it on the horizon. Get up and be ready to please Jesus today. Be like the little three-year-old boy just wakes up saying, there's a whole world out there. A whole opportunity, a whole world of opportunity to please Jesus, to love Jesus, to glorify Jesus. And I'm going to waste my time on this stuff, which is a wasted life, it's a dishonor to my king and my savior, and it only leads to strife. Sin is pleasurable for the short term or else we wouldn't be interested in it, but it never lasts, it never satisfies. And we know that, yet we keep giving in. It feels really good for the moment to let somebody have it. But if you're a Christian, the spirit of God then convicts you all the way home. And you can't sleep at night because you're feeling and you're knowing I wasn't loving in that encounter. And then you start listening to yourself again. You start justifying. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Remember the church of the yabbits. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Love your brother or your sister. Period. And you weren't loving. That's deeds of darkness. You gave consciousness, you gave effort, mental effort to the deeds of darkness. Put that off and put on love. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on righteousness and purity. It's daytime. I rejoice in the fact that at this stage of my life, except for Saturday mornings, cuddling with my wife, I actually love to get up. I feel like a little kid again. Because this truth has, has permeated my thinking. Like, it's another day where I get to please Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I can give forethought to the flesh too, and sometimes I do. But most days, I get up and I think, I have hours and hours and hours and hours now to think about Christ, to read his word, to encourage others. You know, I was talking about the, the cuddling on Saturday morning with Krista. Well, and occasionally that happens on other mornings. But the one morning it doesn't ever happen is Sunday morning. Sunday morning the alarm goes off and I'm ready to get up. In fact, she rolled over today and started calling and said, no, get off of me! It's Sunday! I didn't quite do that, did I? But it's Sunday morning. 
I get to come and preach the word of God on Sunday morning. I get to come hang out with 300 of my closest friends. People who love me, people who love Jesus, people who want to come into this building and sing praise to Jesus Christ and fellowship with one another. It's a great day. I love Sunday mornings. I love Sunday afternoon naps. And then the Spirit of God says, get up! It's still daylight. Do something. And by and large, most days, I'm excited when the alarm goes off, or usually I'm up before the alarm. Maybe that's part of it. I don't sleep very well. Maybe that's the thing. It's like, why am I wasting my time in bed? I'm not sleeping anyway. But when the sun comes up, I'm ready to do something for the Lord Jesus. And on those days when I don't do something for the Lord, when I'm not acting in that mentality, the other day I feel like Dad was right. I just wasted this whole day. Might as well have been in bed all day because I didn't do anything of any value. I didn't think about Jesus. I didn't serve Jesus. didn't talk to Jesus. Why am I even here? Tomorrow, it's going to be different. And when the sun comes up, I'm getting up and I'm going to pursue this world and I'm going to pursue exalting Christ and glorifying Christ and enjoying Christ because salvation is nearer today than it was when I first believed. This is Paul's appeal. You notice it's not a harsh rebuke. He's talking to a bunch of people who just came out of that pagan culture. Some of these folks had probably been involved in the Bacchanalia parties not too long before this. And he doesn't say, look, scum. It's an appeal. You know what time it is. Get up. Leave that stuff behind and live in the light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give any forethought to those things. Serve Christ, love Christ, pursue Christ. And the same message is for us 2,000 some years later. Wake up! Wake up, live in the daylight. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we've seen in Romans 12 and 13 this looking back and looking forward. Look back to the grace of God, look forward to the day of salvation. The Lord's Supper does the same thing. Remember when Jesus said, or when Paul said, take this and proclaim his death. That's looking back. Jesus died. He died on the cross. That's our hope. That's our, that's our justification. That's our, our innocence before God, the fact that he punished Jesus in our place. That's looking back to the cross. But we proclaim his death until what? Until he comes. That's looking forward. We're not done yet. As Dwight prayed, we don't just get saved and live your life. Great, great. I'm happy for you. I'm glad you're saved. Now go enjoy life. No, when we come to Christ, we, we receive the grace of the gospel, but we turn from the darkness, we turn toward the light, and we say, for the rest of my days, I will serve you, my king. If you don't do that, then nothing real happened here. 
We proclaim his death that I've been saved until he returns, until he comes back. And in the meantime, I'm going to love him, I'm going to serve him, I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to enjoy life for the sake of Jesus Christ. So as we partake here, that's what we're doing, saying, I believe in his death, and I am looking for his coming, and I'm going to be faithful until that day arrives. Amen?